Eric and Pam, whenever we sing that song, I am always amazed that that was written by a woman who was blind nearly her entire life, and she longed to see her Savior first of all. What a blessing that was to sing that song. James chapter number 5, James chapter number 5, as we enter into this last chapter of this great book, we see once again James bringing back a theme that he has presented once before. Back in chapter number 2, James had dealt with the fact that the church, the people of the church, had really exalted the, the, the rich and the powerful, the celebrities, so to speak, of that age, even giving them prominent seats in the church telling their own church people to basically sit on the floor in what would have been probably some fairly primitive type buildings. They were basically telling them to go sit on the the dirty ground while the rich, who were unsaved, who had blasphemed their God, was given the prominent seats. They were given the prominent seats. They were being exalted. They were being lifted up. They were being celebrated. And James brings back this thought of the rich, the wealthy. Now we get into our minds what a rich or what a a wealthy person is. And we have maybe different ideas. We think of maybe certain politicians. We might think of certain millionaires and billionaires. They might have certain names, certain faces, images that come up maybe on our screens. Uh, Certain people that we know that have a lot of money and run big corporations or whatever the case may be. Well, I was told several years ago by a guest speaker, I can't remember if it was a missionary or an evangelist that came through our former ministry, and he had done some research, he had done some study. And I don't know exactly what the statistics are, but he mentioned something about if you make as little as $10,000 a year, you are like in the 20 upper 25th percentile or something like that for the entire world as far as income. So just by making $10,000 a year, 75 plus percent of the world would think that you're rich. That's how wealthy we are really here in America. There are many, many people, even teenagers probably today that are making 10 plus thousand dollars a year. I remember being in Africa on mission trips and Uh, They thought that every American was just rich and increased with goods. So rich can have some, or wealthy can have some uh, relativistic definitions. It can be relative in the sense of anybody who has more money than you can be seen as rich and wealthy. In some parts of the world, every American is rich and wealthy. But even by that standard that I just mentioned, $10,000 of income in a year by most in the world, in the upper 25th or so percentile, that is considered wealthy, that is considered rich, to even make 10,000 a year. But James is clearly dealing with those who are trusting in their riches, who are trusting in their wealth instead of God. He is going to be very strong here as James, as we have noticed the pattern with James, by the inspiration of God, he deals with the issues, and he deals with them very succinctly and very pointedly. The rich, the wealthy, seem to be getting away with their sin. They seem to be dominating everything. 
They have even, in some cases, as we mentioned in James 2, they've even mesmerized some of the people of the church who have kind of exalted them and lifted them up into a celebrity-type status. And yet they blaspheme God's name, they've rejected God, they've rejected God's word. And James, in this passage, he's really calling them to repentance. He's calling them to place their faith and their trust in Christ instead of in their riches. He also pronounces a judgment. The judgment is not necessarily for being rich or for being wealthy. It's not necessarily about having money, having profit. He isn't necessarily criticizing them for making money and making lots of it. That isn't necessarily the criticism. But what does having a lot of money and a lot of stuff tend to do? It tends, us, tends for us to become self-dependent. It tends to make us depend on our own selves and our own abilities. We tend to trust in our riches, trust in our materials, trust in the things that we can buy and the things that we can have and places that we can go. We tend to become more focused upon self and become more dependent and begin to trust in our wealth and our riches and the things that we have and the things that we can buy instead of trusting in the Lord. And as a matter of fact, we'll read later, and we'll talk about this some more later, but Jesus is very clear in the gospel accounts that it's very difficult for a rich person to enter into heaven. So difficult that it was like the camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. And my understanding is that's literally referring to that little loop at the top of a needle. And for a camel to go through that little loop, that little circle at the top of the needle, that would be impossible. That's how difficult, that's how much people trust in their wealth and their riches and their material possessions. We even dealt with that a little bit last week when we talked about the Lord wills and we talked about the rich farmer who was, who was building extra barns and silos and was saying over and over, I did this and I have this and I will have that. And he didn't trust in the Lord. And his life consisted in the abundance of the things that he possessed. And he had gained much of what the world had to offer, but he had lost his own soul. So James is dealing with this trust in riches, this idolization of wealth, this faith in material things instead of faith in God. He criticizes the rich for using their wealth as a weapon to dominate, to manipulate, to abuse people. Their trust in their riches kept them from coming to Christ in saving faith. And their wealth kept them from seeing their sinfulness and their need for the Lord. James had dealt with this in chapter 2 in regards to the church people and them being caught up in some of this same kind of thinking. So now we come to James chapter 5 and we read there in verse number 1, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. There's that phrase, go to now. Again, it's the idea of calling to attention. Come to a place where you can listen. I have something very important to say. Sometimes we do this with children we, we at least I've done it with my own. I've brought them up close and I put my hands 
up against either, either cheek and said, look at me. <laughs> this is very important here. He's saying, once again, come to a place. Go to the place where you can have my undivided attention. I can have your undivided attention. This is a very important message that I have for you. He says, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. We see, first of all, in this passage, the temporal quality of riches, the temporal quality of wealth, of riches. He says in verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3, the first part of the verse, your gold and silver is cankered. Their riches will corrupt. Their riches will go away. Their riches will become moth-eaten. They eventually will have to pass down their wealth to the next generation. It can be stolen. It can be defrauded. It may get divided up among the heirs of whatever the family they have. And we know how that can happen sometimes among families. A wealthy individual dies and the family will fight over who gets what percentage. And sometimes things aren't clear in wills and sometimes lawyers get involved and sometimes even there's nothing documented and the government has to get involved and there has to be even uh, court rulings about who gets what and what a mess it can be, right? He's saying your riches are going to go away. They're going to become moth-eaten. He says your gold and silver is cankered. We think of cankered in the sense of a canker sore, a sore inside of our mouth. This is the idea of being corroded, of rusting away. He's saying temporal riches are just that. They're temporary. There is a temporal quality to wealth. It has some function. It has some purpose right now, but we should not trust in it. We should not idolize it. We should not depend upon it because it will be corrupted. It will become moth-eaten. It will be corroded. It will go away. As I've said it before, and you've probably heard it said many a time, you never see a rider truck or a U-Haul behind a hearse. They don't take it with them. Tutankhamun in Egypt thought he could take his wealth with him into the afterlife, and we're still digging up his wealth found in his pyramid. And the archaeologists continue to dust off the corroded, cankered, corrupted wealth that he buried in that pyramid that he did not take to the afterlife. Proverbs 23 and verse 5 says, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Now we're to lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. We read in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, The love of money is the root of all evil. That word all evil, that phrase there, is all kinds, all sorts of evil. Do we not see all kinds of evil over the love of money? All the various corruptions that we could talk about that have to do with money. Murders and violence, fraudulent schemes. We see too often where profit is placed above biblical principle. Where cash is king, but Christ is not. 
Proverbs 27 and verse 23. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever. And doth the crown endure to every generation? Wealth goes away. And the power that often accompanies wealth does not endure. Look at the many wealthy people that have horrible, messed up, sinful lives, full of debauchery. Just this week, I saw a headline that the wife of Hugh Hefner is writing a book and is publishing a book and she described her life with Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner as toxic. But she was, in however many years ago that he passed away, she was at one point looked at as someone who had the life, had it all. The luxury and the immorality and just about anything that money can buy because of Hugh Hefner's perverted, sinful lifestyle and all the wealth that he accumulated with it. Now she's writing a book and she's saying how toxic, how awful it was to live that way. We can look at Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, and the mess that's going on and how many people are on that list who were flown around and went to different parties and the disgusting, perverted island. Where, where's all that now? There's people who don't even want to be named on that list. His name means perversion, wickedness. We can talk about a Harvey Weinstein who used his power and manipulated as a Hollywood producer, took advantage of people, built himself great wealth, and I think he's in prison now in scandal. Sam Bankman Freed recently, who was prosecuted and had a cryptocurrency and was making millions, had a lascivious lifestyle, anything that money can buy, women and all that, and now it's all just collapsed. We see the truth of God's word regarding the temporal quality of riches. But then we also see the tendency of wealth to make one proud. The tendency of wealth to make one proud. We continue. Verse 3. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. In other words, they have accumulated, but it's not going to last. Eventually it's going to go away. Verse 4. Behold. The hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Lord of Sabbath is another phrase for the Lord of hosts. The tendency of wealth to make one proud. The laborers are crying out. They have defrauded them. The cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. He is bringing a reckoning upon these rich, wealthy, overpowering, manipulative, overburdening, wealthy, powerful people. He's bringing, pronouncing a judgment. 
The Lord hears the cry of those you have defrauded, those you have ripped off. We know rich politicians today, they virtue signal, they develop big government programs, right, that really have little compassion, treat people like numbers in a system. We can talk about Marxism, communism, socialism, that masquerade, right, masquerade as systems for empowering the poor and the impoverished. While in reality, what do they do? They share the misery and the poverty while enriching the elites and the powerful who live in rebellion against God, against God's sovereign rule, against God's authority, against God's word, against God's truth. And James is bringing a pronouncement of judgment upon the rich and the wealthy and the powerful who have abused their power, who have abused their riches, who have used it to defraud, to manipulate, to exploit the people under them. It's the same sins that we see today, just different names, different faces. James is dealing with it. He's addressing it very clearly, and in some cases it seems rather bluntly, but it's necessary, it's needed. In verse 5, they lived in pleasure, in luxury. Even that word pleasure has the idea of they, they lived without any self-restraint. There was very little, if any, self-denial. Whatever they wanted to do, if they could buy it, if they could get it, they would get it, they would do it, they would get whoever they wanted to get to serve them, and they took advantage of them. They lived in pleasure, reckless in their lifestyle and their morals. It says also that they have been wanton and been wanton. They have lived in luxury. There was nothing that they didn't want that they couldn't get, basically. But now they are going to find that it didn't satisfy. It didn't meet their real needs, their spiritual needs. The need for forgiveness of their sin, which they didn't see because they were so self-dependent on their wealth, on their riches. They didn't need God. They had it all. They could... Buy it, earn it, whatever it was, they could order, have the people work for them, and then they would defraud them, exploit them. They had nourished their hearts, we read there, as in a day of slaughter. And James is, he, he, he's, he's straightforward here. He says, they ate well, they lived luxuriously, they probably even had the finest foods of the day, like a banquet, and the buffet, and the smorgasbord. And he says, they were like the calves, the animals that were being prepared for the slaughter. They were living luxuriously. They had everything that the that money could buy. They had a a, a, a temporal wealth, and he said, because they rejected God, they rejected Christ, they didn't see their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness, they didn't need, see their need for the Lord, he said all of that luxurious living was like an animal being fattened up to go on the dinner table. Like that big fat turkey that we go to the grocery store and we buy before Thanksgiving. And he says, there self-dependency, their sin, their luxurious, pleasure-filled lifestyle, absent of God and rejection 
of God was preparing them for the day of slaughter, the day of judgment. How sad. Reminds us of the rich young man in Matthew 19 who walked away from Jesus unsaved. Jesus had tried to point out his sin. He listed off some commandments. Oh, the rich man said, I've kept all those. And then Jesus named off some more and the man began to realize that his sin was one of covetousness and greed. And Jesus was trying to get him to recognize that and that he needed to forsake all that wealth and all those riches and look to Christ in saving faith and turn from his sin that he was unwilling to recognize because he had so much and he walked away that day unsaved. And then Jesus said that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. As I referenced earlier, it was at that point that there was the disciples questioned, and who can be saved? Because so many of us depend on our riches, depend on our wealth. As a matter of fact, in the custom of the day, riches and wealth were a sign of God's blessing. So for them to have some poverty, for them to not have the wealth, for that rich man to be condemned by Jesus Christ as a man who was unable to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the disciples were thinking, wait a minute, I thought that wealth, I thought that riches, I thought that was a sign of God's blessing. Don't we, don't we see that today? The prosperity gospel, the word faith movement. And what's the pastor supposed to do? I'm supposed to drive a really nice car and make a really big salary and, drive the, and wear the finest clothes and have the nicest jewelry and have the first lady, Kelly, accompany me with the same because she's also the pastor. And then I will show you the example of what it's like to be blessed by God because I have so much faith and you don't. Don't we see this infecting ministries? Where we have men who build themselves a kingdom here on the earth and then they have a fall. And we find out that they were involved in power or abuse in their power as a minister or a so-called minister. Sometimes involved in immorality. Sometimes involved in fraudulent activity. Moving money around under the ministry label and the different accounts. It infects even sometimes those who call themselves ministers of the gospel. Jesus has a grave warning in Matthew 19. He says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So then who can be saved, the disciples asked. And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, with God it is possible. So what's the answer? Quit depending on our riches. Quit looking to our accumulated wealth. Quit looking at all the things that money can buy. Quit looking at all that this world can offer. And look to Christ in saving faith. Turn from our sin. Quit depending on ourselves and our riches and our material possessions. Because our life does not consist of the things that we possess. But we're told that. That's the lie that we're told. That our life consists of the things that we possess. But no, it doesn't. And shame on us. If we have that kind of envious attitude toward the things of the world, shame on us as believers if we have that same kind of idolatrous spirit towards wealth and material possessions that we don't trust God. 
There are some who gain the whole world, yet lose their own soul. Luke 16 talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. But Lazarus was where? In Abraham's bosom. And it was reminded to the rich man as he cried out, being in torment. The rich man was reminded that Lazarus ate from the crumbs of the rich man's table, yet Lazarus was rich toward God because he had saving faith. The rich man was rich on the earth, but he was in poverty toward God because he never trusted Christ in saving faith. The tendency of wealth to make one proud, the temporal quality of riches. Thirdly, we see the terror of their actions, the terror of their actions. Go back to verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. They defrauded their laborers. They took advantage of their employees. Maybe they were cutting their wages unfairly, and their cry went up to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabbath. Down in verse 6, Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. They have condemned and killed the righteous on the earth, the just, those who have lived right, those who have been godly. And yet the just doth not resist you. The rich and the powerful persecute, imprison, and even kill the just, the righteous of society. Are we not seeing that around the world and even here in America where we see powers, departments of the government now targeting Christians, churches, God-fearing groups of people? I forget what I just heard, the latest. I think it was the, um, uh, the department of whoever, HHS, I guess, whoever runs Medicare and Medicaid. And there was another headline this week of the, whoever oversees the audits for Medicare and Medicaid were targeting the red states, particularly Texas, the red states, Texas, Missouri, I forget the other states, and excusing not auditing other states. Have we not seen powers of government, the rich and the powerful, go after Conservative, God-fearing, Christian groups. They're targeting even churches, IRS, several years ago. It's not just here. We're seeing it for the first time in ways we've never seen it before here in America that we never thought we'd ever see, even with all the freedoms and amendments and Constitution. There's around the world, last year, last year, I believe it was in Nigeria, 5,000 Christians were murdered by Islamic revolutionaries in the country of Nigeria. Incredible. The terror of their actions, condemning and killing the just. The righteous, the righteous do not, the just do not resist. What is that saying? In other words, the righteous are willing to go to their death rather than compromise on the truth or deny their faith in God. The just, the righteous, the godly, those who know Christ, they will not deny Christ. 
They will go to their death. They will not resist. They'll take whatever powers they can. We'll go through whatever constitutional means. We'll appeal to our legislators and our senators and our representatives. But when it comes to sound doctrine, when it comes to truth, we are not going to compromise. Even if it means we have to go to our death. That's basically what James is saying. He does not resist you. You condemn him and you even kill him. But he will not compromise. Yet the wicked, they may gain the whole world, but they'll lose their own soul, no matter how rich and powerful they are. So we see the temporal quality of riches, the tendency of wealth to make one proud, the terror of their actions, and then we see, fourthly, the tenacity of of believers, the tenacity of believers. Let's go down to verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He gives three illustrations quickly here. First of all, the word patient. Patience. In verses 7, 8, and 10, the word patient refers to long-suffering endurance toward people, even of those persecuting and mistreating us. It is a Christ-like response to those individuals who are making life miserable for us. It's a long-suffering endurance toward people. But verse 11, it changes. I know we haven't read verses 9 through 12, but down in verse 11, the word patient, patience of Job, we see that that is a different word. It means to bear up under. To bear up under adverse circumstances. So the first three words of Translated patient, verses 7, 8, and 10 have to do with long-suffering toward people, but in verse 11 has to do with endurance under hard times, to bear up under. And he gives three examples to us of tenacity, of endurance, to help us, to encourage us. When the rich are being abusive, when the powerful are being abusive, when the persecutors come, when the just are being condemned and killed... When there's trials like this that come, there's a certain tenacity that God gives his people, a certain endurance. And he gives three examples. One is the farmer, the husbandman. He talks about the husband in verse number seven. This is the farmer. He waits on the crops to grow. He mentions the early and latter rains. The early rains were October, November during the planting season. And then March and April were the latter rains that were right before harvest. Some of you are farmers or have a background in farming and you know much more about this than I do. But you understand what it means to wait, to trust, to have to depend upon God and do everything you can to prepare the soil and to do whatever irrigation and fertilizing and pesticides that you can do. But ultimately, it's up to the Lord. There's a waiting on the Lord, a trust in the Lord. One of the reasons that agricultural communities are typically more conservative is because they deal with reality. They deal with a trust and a dependence in God. They understand realities, even down to male and female when it comes to the mating of the animals, right? There's a reality that the transgender movement denies. 
But there's the waiting by the husbandman, the farmer. He waits. In waiting, what do we see? In verse number eight, in waiting, we are to establish our hearts. We're to establish our hearts. How do we establish our hearts? How do we make our hearts secure and solid, put in in the sense of a post, cemented into the ground, held firm? How do we establish our hearts? We do that by the word of God. We claim the promises of God's word. We hold on to them. We serve, we obey, we evangelize, and we stand up for the truth, all while waiting, all while firmly established. The church has a role in establishing our hearts. Romans 1 and verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. Paul, as the evangelist, the missionary, the pastor, he understood that he had a role within the church, that the church's, one of the church's roles is to establish our hearts. That's why it's so important that we come to church, that we be under the teaching and preaching of God's word, that we be fellowshipping together and provoking one another to love and good works, not forsaking of the assembling of ourselves together, because that's part of God's establishing our hearts. And so much the more as we see the, the day approaching. First Thessalonians 3, Timothy and Titus are sent by Paul to establish the young Thessalonian believers at the Thessalonican church, the church of Thessalonians. We see also that Paul prayed that those Thessalonian believers would be established. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The church has a role in establishing our hearts. When we get impatient, we become disobedient. When we begin to give up and get weary and discouraged, we often resort to disobedience, to sin. We must not do that. We must endure. We must establish our hearts. Verse 8, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Christ is coming. The wicked will meet their end. The rich and the powerful that exploit, that abuse, that are immoral, that seem to be getting away with it. The Lord has heard the cry of the laborers. The Lord has heard the cry of those who are patient, whose hearts are established. And like the farmer, we need to wait and trust. And our hearts are established by the word of God that has taken seed and has made root in our hearts and is producing fruit of Christ's likeness. And we are patient and we endure. Secondly, he gives the illustration of the prophets. The prophets, grudge not one against another, brother, unless you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Don't, begin, don't resort to fighting one another. Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. He gives the example of the farmer who has to wait and trust and depend upon the Lord. And he gives the example of the prophets who witnessed, who preached, and endured persecution, and in some cases were even martyred. Look at the example of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. Think of Elijah who went to the brook and was fed by ravens waiting for the Lord to bring rain. And then he was called where? From there to the widow at Zarephath and was enabled by the Lord to perform a miracle and help provide for her needs. Elijah stood up against great resistance and the prophets of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel. So many more examples. 
of the prophets that we could talk about. And then he gives a third example. Not just the husband and the farmer and the prophet, but he also talks about Job. He goes down in verse number 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Job. Job endured hardships without even knowing about the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. Job was never really told why he suffered the way he did. But Job said what? Though he try me, I will trust in him. He said, I will come forth as gold. He said, when his wife told him to curse God and die, Job refused. He would not blaspheme the name of God. He said that my Redeemer lives. He trusted the Lord. He understood that God had a purpose. God had a plan in his suffering. He had to wait. He had to watch. He had to trust the Lord. He had to, in faith, depend, not even knowing all of the answers. And I don't think that Job was wrong in asking why. I believe Job did so in respect, in reverence. But God never really gave him a specific answer. God just took chapter after chapter and said, Job, I am the creator. Job, I have done this. This is who I am. And chapter after chapter, verse after verse, God just declared who he was and who he is to Job. And Job had to rest in that. And then God restored Job in a tremendous way. Even gave him more children. I believe it doubled the amount of children that he had so that he would have a group already in heaven that he would see one day when he went to glory. But he was going to eventually, Lord willing, take another group of the same size to heaven with him. What a glorious reunion day that was, right? When they all entered into the presence of the Lord together. And maybe Job has some of those answers now. But he trusted. He had patience. He waited to the end. He understood that the Lord is pitiful of compassion and of tender mercy. He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy of our praise. He will not let us down. We can trust him. We can endure. We can persevere with God's help through the trials and the tribulations of life. We can be long-suffering with the individuals, and we can bear up under the circumstances. Though the rich, the powerful, bring their terrors as they trust in the temporal quality of their riches, and through their riches have tended to become proud, we can be tenacious for the Lord with God's help, and endure, and be patient Trusting our ever-compassionate and all-merciful God. May that be true of us as we go forth from here today. Let's pray. Lord, we have such a tremendous passage in front of us that rebukes us for our lack of faith, our impatience, our disobedience, our complaining, and our griping. When, Lord, we are reminded by James and Through the inspiration of your word and the preservation of your word today, we are reminded of your mercy, your compassion, that you are worthy of our trust, of our faith. May, Lord, we depend upon you and not on ourselves and our own things and what we can buy and what we can earn and what we can do. But truly, Lord, 
by faith, depend upon you and live for you. Lord, I pray that you'll use your word in our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may today they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. Strengthen us as believers to go out from here a more faithful people, tenacious, enduring with patience. Lord, whatever it is that you bring our way, trusting in you and depending upon you, for the Lord, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Derek is going to come.